As we come to your word this morning, we do give thanks and we ask that you would send you and lead us into all truth. Apply these things to our hearts and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a kid, I grew up in a fairly religious environment. Basic Bible stories with their moral lessons were common knowledge, but the grace of God with its announcement of human depravity was a foreign concept. See, we had a nice Jesus who had nice followers. This was the tenor of religion in my hometown. Churches prioritized moral behaviors, and as this happened, my classmates who had grown up in these religious environments gradually drifted further and further away from organized Christianity. As the years moved on, we talked less and less about it. Of course, I had one friend who, despite it all, identified himself as a follower of Jesus. He remained fairly loyal to his church. He attended regularly, was a thoughtful guy, and was a good conversation partner at times. He was an extremely virtuous person. He was known for his goodness and activity in the community. One night, we were having a conversation about Christianity, and in the course of the conversation, this is what he said to me. He said, well, I figure that if it isn't true, it doesn't matter, because it will have guided me to live a good life, and I'll be good with whatever God there is. In my own immaturity, I was all of 16, I didn't know what to say. Years later, reflecting on that conversation, I noted that it wasn't so innocent and virtuous as it seemed. It didn't have the wisdom that it apparently had. Karl Barth once said this. He said, evil always takes good care not to show itself as such. It always cloaks itself, hiding under the garment not only of innocence, but of an exalted virtue. And it is this exalted virtue that is our goodness that we attempt to bring to God and to put an obligation on God that the Apostle Paul goes after in Ephesians chapter 2. He sees that this is a direct frontal assault on how God is attempting to work salvation in the world and to create a human boast before God with our good works completely undermines the gospel. But how so? There's two ways that it undermines the gospel. First, our boasting actually conceals the truth. We find that Paul begins in chapter 2 with a statement of the truth of who we are prior to our conversion. It's a simple statement, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And friends, when we attempt to erect a boast before God, when we try to put a claim on God, when we attempt to make God our debtor, and we say we have something that we can offer to him, what we are concealing is this monstrous truth about ourselves that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and as a dead person, we have nothing to offer God. We cannot obligate God. We cannot make God our debtor because we can't do anything. He goes on to further modify this and explain it. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And then he goes on saying that we carry out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. 
This is that very common three-part repetition of our problem that we are indebted to the world, that we're indebted to the devil, and we're indebted to our flesh. And so Paul drafts out the problem of human sin to be a monstrous one. It's enormous. It goes well past us. And when we enter into human boasting, what we've done is simply to conceal all that the Bible actually says about who we are that we are dead and we are denying that. And so far from actually being virtuous and looking religious, we see that when we attempt to erect goodness in front of God, that we are insulting God, that we are concealing the truth, that we're denying it. And perhaps the most insidious victory of the world, the flesh, and the devil is to convince us that of our own doing, we can procure or buy God's favor. And that's what Paul goes out against. Because we can parade virtue around, and we can act good, and we can think that we're going to gain points with God. But this is not the gospel. The second way that this boasting undermines the gospel is that our boasting demonstrates a profound ingratitude. If you follow along in verses 4 through 7, Paul here explains how it is that salvation enters into the world and how it comes to us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here what's crucial is for us to recognize how it is that salvation enters into our lives according to the grace of God, how it is accomplished. And in verses 8 and 9, we see that it is the decision of God in his great love that he sends Jesus Christ. And then Paul explains that because Jesus Christ has come, and in his death and in his resurrection, and then in his ascension to God's right hand, when we place our faith in him, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. That is simply to say that we share in his death, we share then in his resurrection, and we share in his ascension. And so now we stand in Christ before the throne of God. That's what Jesus has done for us. And the assault of good works, when we attempt to do something to procure God's favor, when we try to gain his pleasure with our good works, is that we are denying the gift that he offers in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul calls it in verse 9. It is the gift of God. That is what salvation is. And so God offers us a gift, and then we attempt to add something to it. In some way, we're denying the gift. In our pride, we're resisting it. We're pushing it away. We're saying that it's not sufficient. And friends, this is why works are ultimately an assault on the gospel. It's because they don't receive what God freely gives. As a kid, many of you have heard this story. I grew up on West Haven's Circle. West Haven's Circle had a famous bully. His name was Chris Edmondson. 
he terrorized the neighborhood. And as any good bully, he had his associates, his minions, who worked alongside of him. And this made any type of sporting activity on the block extremely difficult. It was hard just to play a game of kickball, football, or basketball without the bully restructuring the rules and sending us all home frustrated. But that was life on West Haven Circle. There was one kid around the block, his name was Danny Hoden. Danny was strange. But there were times when I would simply give up on life on West Haven Circle and go play with Danny because I just couldn't handle Chris Edmondson any longer. And so one afternoon, I was actually playing with Danny Hoden, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and here came Chris Edmondson and his associates around the block. And they, of course, stopped where Danny and I were playing, and they announced some taunts and said some uh, things that we won't repeat. And then they threw some mud on us. You know, I mean, this is, this is elementary school, okay? Threw mud on us and rode off laughing. About 10 minutes later, Danny said, come on. So we walked around West Haven Circle, past my house, and went straight to Chris Edmondson's house. Now, I'm standing out in the street, wondering what is about to unfold. Danny goes up to the door, the side door of the house, knocks. Chris's mother answers the door, and he says, is Chris here? I can hear the conversation. She goes and yells for Chris. Chris comes to the door. He steps into the doorway, and Danny hits him in the stomach. He bends over and then hits him with an uppercut, and his nose exploded, and I was rejoicing in the street. He had done what I could not do. Chris was two years older than me. He was huge. I could not fight Chris Edmondson, and I had lived for years under this tyranny of not being able to play the game horse without someone fighting me. And suddenly, here Chris was in a pile of tears in his own doorway. And all the kids who were not aligned with Chris were rejoicing because they had been freed from the tyranny of it. And my dad always comments, you know, we never heard from Chris Edmondson after that. (laughs) And friends, this is the way salvation works for us in Jesus Christ. That we have a massive problem. We're boxed up in the world, in the flesh, and in the devil. We're under the control of things that are outside of us and things that are inside of us. There's nothing that we can do. Paul says that we're dead. But then Jesus Christ comes, and he comes as our deliverer. And then we draft off of his victory. Like the children in West Haven Circle who were set free by Danny Hoden, we got to celebrate because of what he had done. He delivered us from the tyranny of the bully. And when we then respond to the gift that Jesus accomplishes in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension, and we try to improve on that, it is not becoming. It's not virtuous. It's not innocent. Trying to add to the grace of God is an insult to the grace of God. To claim part of the victory for ourselves is an insult to, the vi- insult to the victory itself. This is what we cannot do. This is where we cannot go. And this is why Paul is so strenuous in the fact of announcing that your good works cannot obligate God. Twice he tells us it's not by our own doing. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
And he comes at good works with such ferocity that it then opens up another misunderstanding because the church can completely miss the grace of God. We can become moralistic. But then the church, in believing in the grace of God, saved by that grace, can also become complacent. And so while one error is to try to improve the grace of God and add to it and gain God's favor by what we do, another error is to turn the grace of God into merely a one-time transaction, something that happens in our past, and we become complacent sitting in it. And this complacency, I would also also point out, betrays the grace of God in two ways. Let's look at this. We're focused in verse 9 and 10. First, it shrinks or minimizes the grace of God. Following in verse 10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The language here is provocative and powerful. When Paul picks up the language of creation, He's evoking the idea that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17 of new creatures, of new creation. And then when we talk about the salvation that God brings into the world in Jesus Christ, we're talking about something that touches every aspect of our being and every part of our lives. That God recreates us in Christ Jesus and we are now his workmanship. The thing that he is crafting, the thing that he is forming, the thing that he is shaping, what he's doing in the world. And specifically, what has he created us for? Good works. The ground of our confidence before God is in Jesus Christ. The ground of our confidence is not in our works. But now the goal of that salvation that has been freely given to us is good works. And so the goal is not meritorious, it's just the direction that God now sends us out and that God is now working in our lives to achieve. And friends, this is the sanctifying work of God. It is the gift of God that we are now his workmanship, that we've been set apart for this, for these good works. And this is where in our lives we have to learn to trust God. Because it is in our ordinary circumstances where this great plan actually works itself out. There are many different twists and turns for each of us as we work ourselves through the years, where we find ourselves challenged and in adversity. And in the midst of challenges and adversity, inevitably the question arises, why God? Why this? And we're oftentimes so slow to recognize the fact that God in all of his providence and all of his directing of our lives is authoring all of that to accomplish his work, his workmanship, to do what he wants to create in us, to follow that path. And one of the most difficult things about the Christian life is trusting God's wisdom as he maneuvers us down that path, working it out, and constantly being curious, asking the question, what does God want to work in me through this? Because sometimes it's frankly hard, and we can be extremely discouraged and depressed, and we can find ourselves angry and even bitter with God. But it is trusting 
that God has that plan, that it is good, and that he has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, and that you have been set apart as his workmanship, and that we're not to sit complacent, because this new creational grace of God, you see, it's not just a transaction that sits behind you sometime in the past when you converted. It is a transaction. You were stated to be saved, but that transaction leads to a transformation that God now is creating, newly creating you, that God is working in you, that you've been created for these good works. That transaction leads to something transformational. And so don't shrink the grace of God. The grace of God is all of that. It's all-encompassing. From the declaration that you are right with God through Jesus Christ, that you've been saved by grace, to the declaration that he is now at work in you. Don't put yourself on a diet. Receive all of that. Now, the second way that we betray the grace of God in our complacency is that that complacency distorts the plan of God. Second half of verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the mysterious truth that we find reaching back into the first chapter of Ephesians. That God before the foundations of the world has been preparing and planning to ransom a people in Christ Jesus that he would set them apart for the praise of his glorious grace. And many people want to ask and inquire well, the, about the fairness of God and the plan of God. And as best I can tell, we have no access to his eternal mind and that this is above our pay grade. And that our best response to these announcements is to receive them joyfully and to ask, how can it be? Why would God set all of this favor upon me before the foundations of the world? And Paul here then draws us into another aspect of that planning and determining God. That God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only has he prepared beforehand our salvation in Jesus Christ and adopted us and brought us by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit into his family, but he's prepared for us these good works in which we are to walk. And when we decide to sit complacent in the Christian life, we're distorting the plan of God. We're not in line with what God has planned, with what he has determined for us, what his purposes are for you as part of his new creation. And this means that we're then working against the grain. And brothers and sisters, this is not the direction that works for us. We find ourselves frustrated. We find ourselves purposeless. We find ourselves fighting with meaninglessness because the meaningful life that God has determined for you is in the direction of good works. This is what he's prepared beforehand and drafted out and sent you out into the direction of. And so don't shrink the grace of God. Don't distort the plan of God. We are not saved by our works. We're saved for these good works this is the simple gospel statement. And so we have to hold together this tension that our good works, when they're done to gain something from God, that God hates those things. 
He finds them arrogant, he finds them boastful, and he rejects them. And that God also sets before us good works, that this is the goal of where we are going in Christ Jesus. That Jesus who died, that Jesus who was raised, that Jesus who has ascended, that us sharing in his great salvation, that is a gift from God, given to us, that we're to trust him as he works in us and calls us to go out as those freshly created people, born into new life to serve him. And so trust him with that. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we mess this up in so many different ways, that we oftentimes confuse the role of our goodness and we think that we gain something from you and we end up insulting your grace. And then we also simultaneously become complacent when we know of your great grace. We don't step into what you have set apart for us before the foundations of the world. And so help us. And by your spirit, may we seek after doing good. Not to gain your favor, but simply because this is the goal of what you are doing in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name.